God podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Gushy. He's he's distinguished university professor of Christian ethics and director of the Center of Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. His latest book, Still Christian: Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism, is one in which he writes about his experiences growing up Southern Baptist and in 1978 being kicked out of evangelicalism in 2014 for his stance on the LGBT inclusion in the church. Uh, his religious pilgrimage proves even broader than that. When you read the book, you'll read about his childhood experiences in Roman Catholic and his days at Union Seminary in New York City and uh, how he, his encounters have been with the Christian right. It's a really good, it's a really fine book. Make a great Christmas gift if you had and decided already what to buy. Um, he speaks about cultural divisions of a generation and uh, about how those who him themselves have been disillusioned by the many battles they've had to remain within American Christianity, and American Christianity is sort of key there. He is known nationwide and worldwide to some degree as a moral voice of American Christianity. He's author of more than 20 books and hundreds of articles, including Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, Kingdom Ethics, The Sacredness of Human Life, and uh, Changing Our Mind, in which he talked about how he changed his mind on the LGBT issue. He is also not just a scholar, but he is a pastor. He does church work at First Baptist Church Decatur. He's an activist in human rights, uh, creation care, and the, again, the LGBT acceptance. He's written for the Washington Post, Huffington Post, Baptist News Global, and Religious News Service, and it just goes on and on the places he's been. He's lectured all over the world in places like New Zealand and Holland and Switzerland, and he has been married to his wife for 31 years, and they've got two daughters and a son. And he's the grandparent to a grandson that uh, he was watching over the day that we did this interview. Again, his latest book is is a really worthwhile read, and I highly recommend it. And I found him to be both insightful, spiritual, and humble uh, in this interview that we had. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you was, when was the first time in your life you remember considering that there was a supernatural or spiritual element to life? Uh, I would say I was a spiritually oriented kid from a very early age. Um, and, but as I say in my memoir, the context in which I was raised in the Catholic Church of the late 60s, it didn't quite, it didn't quite feed that spirituality. But when I, when I left the Catholic Church, after confirmation when I was 13 or 14, I remember going on a spiritual quest, uh, you know, crazy stuff like uh, paranormal stuff and ESP and, you know, uh, Ouija boards. And so, I mean, all of that is, is evidence that I I was never just a kind of a, a secularist or an empiricist. I was always looking for something beyond, probably from just a very, very early age. At what point did, you know, I think that was true of that generation. You're just a little younger than I am, but I mean, I do think there was something that um, I've always observed separate a little bit as that generation and the one just, you know, a few years even before me. Uh, there was, seemed to be a sincere uh, search for truth and meaning and something beyond just what we could see. Uh, it, do you know at what point in your life you realized you might actually spend your life's work in that field? Uh, 
Yes. Um, it was after my conversion um, in a Southern Baptist church in 1978 when I was 16 that um, I got uh, deeply committed to, uh, you know, that version of Christianity, kind of Southern Baptist evangelical Christianity, though the word evangelical wasn't used then. And and uh, about six months into that, maybe a little bit later, but I reported in my journal, which I discovered not long ago, um, that I felt called to ministry, that I, I was going to be I was supposed to be a pastor if I could be considered worthy of being a pastor, that I, that's what I was going to be. And um, so by the time I was 17 years old. How did that, there was a gap there somewhere I'm missing. How did you get from the Catholic Church to Southern Baptist Church? Yeah. Um, I was dating a Southern Baptist girl, my first girlfriend, when I was 15. And we made an agreement that I would visit her church one time, and she would visit my church one time. Um, I visited her church one time when she wasn't there in the summer of 1978, and uh, I had a... uh, a powerful conversion experience after four days of um, of just doing church activities that were there in front of me. So I described this in my memoir, um, pivotal event in my life. So that's how I ended up uh, joining the Southern Baptists and becoming a Christian. Well, in the forward of the, your book, you refer to yourself as uh, kind of uh, Forrest Gump. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, that I have uh, seen a lot of the American religious landscape. Um, I've seen Catholic uh, Church. I've seen Southern Baptists, uh, uh, you know, the mainline liberals of uh, Union Seminary in New York. Um, I've attended a Presbyterian church for a while, attended a Episcopal church for a while. Um, I've seen uh, all kinds of evangelicals. So also that... um, over the last 30 years plus, we've been witnessing all kinds of arguments about um, various kinds of issues uh, with evangelicals often in the middle of those arguments, and I've been in a lot of those rooms where those arguments have been taking place. Yeah, I watched, uh, I had a front row seat to the Southern Baptist split. I was actually a journalist by that point, even though I attended Golden Gate and Southern, and um I saw guys, I, I laughingly refer to it as Baptist fist fights. They're really just sort of slap fights in some of the halls. Uh, but it, yeah. really, it really was ugly. And I know even when I was in seminary toward the end, there, you would get these anonymous letters offering to pay you to tape uh, classes by certain professors, not not realizing that we were smart enough to know what happened to revolutionaries after the revolution, even if you were a mercenary. <laughs> I did not know that happened. What I, I do know is that, yeah, as a, as a junior professor, wet behind the ears at Southern Seminary in 1993, 94, and 95, um, all of that stuff was going on. And I was navigating that, um, and it's one of the most difficult periods of my career. I somehow survived both personally and professionally, but but, uh, it was horrible, genuinely horrible. Yeah, it really was ugly. We may get back to the denomination stuff in a minute, but you you have you've talked about in your book and you've written in other places. I've read a good many of your your posts and, and things online, and so, I haven't read your entire book, but I've read sections of it. I've got it, uh, and you have found yourself over the last. Uh, I couldn't get a good timeline from what I was looking at, but you've been pretty aggressively involved in human rights issues of all sorts, ranging from the LGBTQ to capital punishment. Um, 
At what point in your ministry did your convictions lead you into this kind of activism? Very early. Um, my training, uh, after after that call to ministry, I went to William & Mary and um, uh, majored in religion and continued on the path towards becoming a minister. And then when I went to Southern Seminary as a student in the mid-'80s, I discovered that I really loved the discipline of Christian ethics and how that discipline was taught was at the time was with an emphasis on social justice and human rights. And so that, that connected up really well with me. I think my basic temperament was always that way. And then I was taught a way to look at Christianity that led me in that way. And then I went and got my PhD in Christian ethics at uh, Union Seminary in New York, which is a very social justice and human rights oriented school. Um, and, and so then I, you know, I, I did my dissertation on, the Holocaust, uh, which is one of the gravest examples in all of history of what happens when human rights are dismissed and violated. And so after that, it was a matter of attempting to apply the lessons learned kind of to one issue after another that came across my my, uh, my desk, you might say. Yeah, that's a uh, shout out to the Upper West Side and Union there in New York. Um it is an unusual uh, piece of ground to be standing on, though, as a, as a pastor, particularly if somebody who is with a Southern Baptist background, don't you think? It was, and a lot of the interest of my journey, if there is interest, um, is is kind of the sense of, of always being in odd places. Uh, I mean, growing up Catholic, it was odd that I became a Southern Baptist, but I did by conversion. And then becoming a Southern Baptist, it was odd that I decided to go to a Union Seminary in New York to get a Ph.D., but I did for good reasons, um, mainly because I thought it was the best school I could get into to get a Ph.D., um, but I also had good recommendations as that was a good place to go, and it was. Um, and then, um, you know, so then I was a liberally trained but semi-conservative leaning, you know, evangelical Southern Baptist who went back then into the classroom as a new professor, but gradually found my um, myself more open and less conservative, or at least less rigidly conservative, than whatever environment I found myself in. And so I've, I've, I've had some interesting kinds of uh, uh, who am I, where am I, why am I here type moments um, along the way, that's for sure. Well, if somebody tried to find you online, one of the things that does pop up um, uh, quickly is the fact that you are a professor of, of Christian ethics. Kind of give me a delineation between if you're just a professor of ethics, a profession of Christian ethics, where's the dividing line and what are the, the major differences? Well, I, well, ethics, just ethics, can mean a lot of different things. In most universities, the first place you would find ethics professors would be in the philosophy department. Mm -hmm. And then you might find them as professional ethicists in, like, the business school or the law school. Uh, but my training is in Christian ethics, which is a branch of the theological disciplines. And so we teach generally in, in Christian seminaries and uh, colleges, Yeah. So uh, the methodology is entirely different uh, because Christian ethics comes from a theological base of Christian faith, and 
professional ethics and secular ethics or philosophical ethics doesn't. As in, uh, you're still dealing with some of the same moral problems, but from a different perspective. That, that kind of brings me into the next point is, um, has your activism, I mean, this the, the fact that you're a pastor, in addition, you're a very busy person. I'm pretty astounded at how busy you are. I know how hard it is to write a book and how hard it is to write. And I was reading through your, your stuff and realized how much, you must, you're a busy man. Um, <laughs> but have you found your activism has put you at odds with any members of your churches? Um, I have been a pastor only off and on. Um, I had ministry experience while I was in seminary. And then, then for the first several years of my academic career, um, I was entirely just an academic and just kind of like, you know, a little bit of guest preaching. Uh, but I have served as a pastor in two settings over these last 25 years. One, um, uh, at a kind of a seeker-oriented church in West Tennessee, uh, in the Hybels Willow Creek Mall, and then now as interim pastor of a of a CBF related church, Moderate Baptist Church, here in uh, the Atlanta area. So, um, you know, I and I have always been writing, like writing columns, writing books, uh, and so on. And there, there have been some moments in which some things that I wrote, kind of wearing my social ethics, social justice hat didn't always go down all that well with the congregations, but it was always understood that my primary job, the job that paid my salary and my primary vocation was to be a Christian ethicist, and the pastoring was secondary to that. That was how my calling evolved. Um, once I discovered academia, uh, it became clear to me that my, my particular calling was in the academic arena, and... Um, so I usually say I have three callings, to be a Christian, to be a minister, and then to be a minister in the form of Christian academic life. And so, yeah, I mean, it is true that that a lot of the issues that I write about professionally are sensitive ones for, for and controversial ones. Almost everything that I do is in that arena, um, and uh, it, you have to be careful but you also have to fulfill your calling. And that's, that brings me to the next question. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to speak for you. You may or may not have, but I have some good friends who are pastors and that's their, their main job. And they have grown into an understanding that would probably, you would probably share many of their, their, uh, their positions on social justice and, and, and rights and things. But they say they're fearful for their jobs if they're too aggressive about it from the pulpit or even in the community. Uh, what would you say to those guys? Yeah, uh, that, I hear that all the time. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because ministers, it's a very specific kind of training, uh, and at least the classic kind of ministry training. You're trained to work in the church. And, if, and so, therefore, you are dependent on the church for your employment. So if something goes wrong, uh, then you're dependent on the next church for your employment. And if you're, and if people are rooted in a denomination, as most most of us are, and you find your convictions developing in a way that differs from most of the people in that denomination, then you're really uh, vulnerable. And you're vulnerable in a couple of ways. If you're honest about your convictions, 
you can lose your job. If you're not honest about your convictions, you can lose your soul, lose yourself, feel like you're playing a role, um, punching the clock, telling people what they want to hear. And that, in my opinion, is the more dangerous threat um, because losing your soul is, is about the worst thing that can happen to you. But I, and I talk to people on a regular basis where you know, basically that's where they find themselves. Well, I've talked to some guys that talk about what they've, the way they've tried to deal with it is to pour more of their time and energy into the pastoral, uh, you know, quote unquote, pastoral role of, of ministering to the people and keeping the teaching a little more broad and a little more generic. But they they really do. Um, you you grew up, you know, you were around it enough early enough. I grew up completely in it since the late fifties, where essentially, you know. They wanted guys to preach the same way they did 25 years ago, and they would even—I've even had friends whose people would tell them, "Well, we liked your sermons better 25 years ago." That means he hadn't grown at all; didn't have any room to to grow. Or his understanding of God hadn't changed. <laughs> that would scare me if my pastor's still preaching the same sermon from 25 years ago. You know, sometimes um, sometimes it does seem that at least what, especially what some of the older or more traditional members of churches want is kind of the old, play the old songs, you know? Um, and, but, but again, you can't sell your soul. If, if you're learning something, I mean, if you're learning something, hopefully you're always learning something as a minister, you need to be able to share it. You need to be able to keep growing. And the church can't be just a nostalgia festival. It has to be fresh and it has to speak to, to new concerns and new insights, and not just kind of play the old records over and over again. Yeah, in your new, your your latest book, still Christian, uh, following Jesus out of American evangelicalism. Uh, just tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say still Christian. Um, I am still a follower of Jesus. I still um, uh, am deeply loyal to to the Jesus to whom I committed my life when I was sixteen. Um, I'm still trying to be faithful to Him, trying to study and pray and orient my life to be His person, His disciple. Um, and so it's an affirmation of faith, while the subtitle also communicates that certain other labels that have been important to me in the past no longer are, including the label of evangelical. So um, still a believer in Jesus, still a follower of Jesus. Um, still involved in church, so I'm not a kind of a post-church person, but the book wrestles with my 25-year association with, ev- with evangelicals and my decision that that label doesn't really fit for me anymore. I, I had Tony Campolo on here last year, and he talked about don't call him evangelical anymore because of where it had headed. Do you think the, that the brand is so sullied that more and more people are going to begin to follow that path away from that, at least away from the word? I think so. Yeah, um, it's the word is a <laughs> it, it's kind of a made up word anyway. Um, there are various ways to trace the history of the use of that word in English and in and in America. It has a kind of a different history than it does in England, or than it does in Germany, or than it does around the world. Um, but so words develop in their both the connotations and the denotations and. And what that word now means in the American setting uh, has been very badly damaged by 40 years of culture war politics and strongly politicized 
and republicanized understanding of that word. So, and that's partly lazy journalism, but it's also partly an intentional strategy on the part of activists and preachers and politicians to rebrand the, you know, the evangelical identity in the way that it has, in fact, been rebranded. So, so uh, I don't, for the longest time, I, I joined the whole, uh, well, I'm not that kind of evangelical. Let me tell you what kind of evangelical I am. Um, but that gets pretty old after a while. And I just decided it doesn't work for me anymore. Do you think evangelicals that are still using the, the tag are guilty of political fundamentalism? Often, not always. Um, there are there are people for whom the identity has other kinds of uh, central meanings. Um, it might mean pietistic, devout believer. Uh, it might mean uh, the deeply into global missions and evangelism. Uh, or it might mean uh, they're in a church where evangelical is in the brand name or in the or in the, um, the the self description, and they they're comfortable with that. Um, but the political fundamentalism uh, has certainly come to overshadow almost all hearings of the use of that word, especially in election years. But of course, when are we not contesting either the last election or the next one? So it has been pretty badly damaged by politics. Do you, you know, they're talking about changing the laws. Um, what, what do you think the place is of, you know, your pastoral role, your Christian ethicist role, role in politics? Are you, are you, do you think it's your, your duty to speak out or to work behind the scenes or what? I think it's important to speak out on issues um, occasionally. It depends on the issue and if you feel like what you have to say has, has a meaningful contribution to make. I think endorsing candidates from the pulpit is an atrocious idea. I'm glad it is currently banned. I hope it will always be banned. I think it does violate separation of church and state, at least certainly just bad pastoring. It's divisive unless you happen to be in a congregation where everybody shares the same politics. Even there, um, uh, it's a problem. So, But, you know, the thing is, the reason this is messy is defining an issue as only moral or only political or even only religious, it doesn't usually work. I mean, you take an issue like uh, war, should the United States fire missiles at North Korea? Okay, so at one level, that's a policy issue. It's a foreign policy issue. It's a political issue to the extent that it is contested by our politicians. It's a moral issue because war has always been a moral issue. It has to do with fundamental moral concerns of life and death. Uh, and it's a religious issue because, because it has to do with people that God made in his image and that, that matter infinitely. And so if a preacher, say, makes a statement about war and now fill in any other issue, ten other issues, uh, he, can, he or she can be perceived as being political, quote-unquote, when the intent was to be moral or to be making a religious statement. Now, how you frame issues uh, matters. If you stand up in the pulpit and say, you know, our current president is an idiot and here's why, whatever, then, you know, then you're, you're in, a, you're in a, a different kind of place than if you say, 
brothers and sisters, let's talk about this issue from a biblical perspective, and then you, and you treat it that way. But there's no way to avoid being misunderstood if you tackle any issue that is simultaneously being discussed, like in the newspapers and on the TV talk shows and in, at, at the church. You may be attempting to deal with it only as a moral issue, but you may well be perceived as dabbling in politics. Well, that brings up, what, what issues do you think the church has sort of held its tongue on for too long? Where do I start? Uh, depends on depends on. What issues are uh, important which, enough of you, for you to step out yeah. and and and, and uh, make the noise? Yeah. Um, it depends on. The, so your first question, it depends on what part of the church you're talking about. This is mm. part of the tragedy uh, of our era. Conservative Christians tend to have their portfolio of issues. You know, abortion, sexuality, you know, things like that. Now, religious liberty, and. You know, 10, 20 years ago, it was stem cells, and, and who knows what it will be later. But, but And then, you know, progressive Christians have their issues, which tend to be the justice issues, you know, like uh, poverty and war and um, environment, uh, gender equality, stuff like that. And some of us have attempted to be crossover people and say, let's take some issues from list A and some issues from list B and talk about all of them and be holistic. Um but these days, it seems that people are mainly defaulting back to um, conservatives have their conservative concerns that they feel they must address, and liberals have the liberal concerns that they feel they must address, and they don't talk to each other, and they, they don't even agree on what the important issues are. Or if they agree on the important issue, yeah, important issues, they tend to disagree on what position to take on the issues that, that are um, under discussion. It's pretty much a mess. So in my career, you know, I've dealt with some specific issues along the way. Um, in general, progressive issues, like I've worked on torture and I've worked on climate, on death penalty, on race. Um, done some on abortion, though, mainly what's called common ground efforts on abortion. Done, I worked some on marriage and divorce, um, some, um, some other kinds of issues, but... Um, most of the issues that have gotten me the most ink, uh, most attention, have been on the progressive side. Well, and that I'm glad you brought up the abortion. There's a good example because I know, having covered it and watched it over the years, uh, there seems to have been um, an approach of swinging for the fences, digging in your heels and swinging for the fences rather than taking small victories. I mean, the, the, like you're saying, the, you can't agree on an approach, so it's all or nothing everywhere. And when you watch yep. other movements who, over the last 30 years, have chipped away at every local county ordinance they can get. And, I mean, really it's the way the Human Rights Coalition has secured more and more, um, at least some equal ground for people in the LGBTQ community, is that they have taken those small victories over a period of decades, and now they're in a place where of, of power. Whereas it seems like the abortion issue, I mean, almost... And really, to me, I've, I've interviewed people on both sides, it's either all or nothing. It's swinging for the fences. There's not a, not a dialogue uh, even available. I've participated in some abortion-related dialogues, and there's one in particular that I recall at Princeton that I talk about in my memoir that was remarkable in its intensity, <laughs> and because it was a rare event where seriously anti-abortion and seriously pro-abortion or pro-choice people were in the same room. 
attempting to talk to each other. And, um, I mean, including as far as those who work in abortion clinics and those who protest outside them. You put those people together in a room and see if you can have a conversation. It, <laughs> it's um, unbelievably intense. I admire the effort, that's for sure. Um, so, so I've done some of that. But abortion, abortion is an example of an issue where, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago at least, the nuances of abortion as an issue were more readily recognized. But after Roe versus Wade and 40 years of fighting about Roe versus Wade, it's generally now the people who contest the issue are all or nothing. And they are swinging for the fences and usually striking out, but certainly uh, continuing to, to attempt to, to advance their agenda. And almost using it, using it as a, a, a litmus test about whether or not we can have a discussion. You know, where do you where do you stand on abortion? And that, that's been true in the political arena. Now, and yeah. while we're talking about all this, meanwhile, uh, pretty much any any uh, statistical uh, data you look at uh, shows that people are continuing to flow out of the churches at a record pace because of you know the perceived shortcomings, or that they're not doing this, or they are doing this, or. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about the church as it can, uh, as a, as an institution? And this, this is sort of a very broad, I understand question, but the fact that it seems to, um, to be, uh, shrinking. I don't think in America, there's any doubt I'm that sorry, it's, in America. Yeah. I, I in America. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's shrinking. Um, statistically, everything indicates that. Um, it appears that the Catholic Church is only holding its own through the immigration growth. Uh, pious um, immigrants help to keep Catholicism going. Uh, evangelical Protestantism has slowed or stopped in its growth, and it's holding flat at best. And then the mainland Protestants continue to decline. Um, and it's not because people are joining other religions. It's because they're, they're not doing religion. Uh, there's a and all the studies I've seen, you know, for every percentage point drop in Christian affiliation, there's a percentage point increase in the unaffiliated. So these are these are people who are being de-Christianized. They're just they're leaving church. And I haven't done as extensive reading on this as I would like to. Everybody has their opinions and reasons why. There is some data out there as to why. It's partly generational. The number of outgo, you know, outflow people. Are they tend to be? It's you know each generation younger is less churched. You can track it, um, and it doesn't appear to be just a stage. As if our 23 year olds will go back to church when they're 33. It doesn't appear like it's going that way. Maybe, but it doesn't like doesn't look likely. So we're losing the hearts of each successive next generation, and um, it's quite striking to see it. I mean, you can see it in a lot of different places. Um, and one study, a Barna study, uh, indicated famously that it, a lot of it had to do with the perceived intolerance and politicization of the most visible forms of Christianity, you know, evangelical and conservative and fundamentalist. Um, but there must be other reasons. I don't think it's economic fundamentally, um, uh, but it's real. And churches are closing and shrinking, and uh, and it is it is affecting pretty much every sector of Christianity in America. 
And I think the other thing that's different, and, and having watched this myself for 50-some-odd years, uh, it, there was a time when people were leaving and didn't really consider themselves serious about their spirituality anymore. But now it seems like, you know, whether you call them the duns or whatever you want to call them, people who are leaving the institutionalized church but have are still committed to God or committed to some sort of spirituality in ways that is a little different than, than the kind of surveys you used to see. I notice it in pastoring. Um, my church has 1,400 members, 600 active, which means they come periodically, 300 on the average good Sunday. There are a lot of people who are loosely still affiliated with churches, very loosely. Once a year, twice a year, four times a year, or they get on a run, they, they feel like going for four weeks, for eight weeks, then they stop. But meanwhile, in their social media presence or in their um, their communications with others, they still talk the language of prayer and spirituality and God and faith. They would probably still say they're Christians, but the institutional connection has weakened, um, even if the language of Christianity is still their language. That's That feels new to me, and it certainly makes it difficult to, to build church as an institution when people are drifting around to the edges and um, and still feel like they're involved. We'll have people say, oh, yeah, yeah, your church is my church. That's my church, yeah. And I wouldn't know them for not. You know what I mean? But that's my church. Because when they think about themselves, they think about themselves as affiliated with our church, even if we've almost never seen them in five years. And then there are others who don't think of themselves as affiliated with any church, but they would still say they pray, and maybe they read spiritual books, they read the Bible um, periodically, and, um, and they're still connected in some very loose kind of way. It's fascinating, kind of troubling, really. Yeah, is there anything you think that the church can do? I mean, is it um, not as much uh, practice as it is just cultural, or is there something that we're missing that people are looking for? I know, you know, almost every survey you look at, um, particularly millennials, the top of the list is they're looking for some for, some sort of community, and I think that's been true for a long time, but these people are articulating a little differently. Um, and there's even a lot of folks who are suggesting I had... Um, Joel Hunter on here a few weeks ago, and he was talking about he thinks the future of the church is the micro church, and it's basically going to be house church kind of things with large groups, you know, ten or twelve people, maybe four or five couples meeting together. And uh, what do you see as the future of the church? It's funny, house churches is where we started, you know. So mm-hmm. it it's um, it may well be where we go next. I don't know. Uh, I do think I, there's a paradox in this quest for community. Because people want community, but they don't always want to invest in community. And so community doesn't happen if you don't invest in it. And so I'm wondering whether whether people are setting themselves up for disappointment. I want community. I want to be known, but I'm only going to come to church, you know, every other month. Um, I do think people find community on Facebook and they find community on Instagram and through texting friends and 
other kinds of uh, virtual community. Um, and there are still a number of sturdy churches and sturdy friendship groups where the pretty much the way they do church, the way they do community, is around the dinner table or at the coffee shop. And um, so people are still social beings and still do seek community, but um, they may not be looking for the community of the big local church. I think one of the things we've tried to do at our church, which is big, but is to try to find avenues into community um, that some place to get a, to get a hold, some foothold that is meaningful, and then kind of go from there. There's a much smaller subsection, though, that has gone almost, you know, completely the other direction. I know uh, coming out of the Jesus movement, guys like Jack Sparks and Frankie Schaefer, and now most recently, uh, interesting, that Hank Hanegraaff guy, I don't know that much about who he was, have gone orthodox. They've gone completely from sort of the unstructured to something very structured and very different. I'm yeah. not sure what the appeal there is. I don't know if you've had that experience talking to people who've gone yeah. that direction. Um, more broadly, I've been thinking about this some in terms of my academic work, too. I think that Protestant theology is not feeling especially sturdy right now. Um, if you think about the mainline churches, I mean, how many how many compelling recent statements of Methodist theology have we run into recently? <laughs> um, or UCC theology, or Presbyterian theology, or Episcopal theology. So the mainline churches, we're not getting we're not getting a lot of like robust mainline Protestant theology, um, and there tends to be, in fact, the most visible Protestant churches are a lot of times almost untheological mega churches that are offering something else: hope, wisdom, meaning. But the theology is paper thin. It's evangelism most of the time. Most of the guys that are leading the big ones are evangelists. But their evangelism is it's not classic gospel evangelism. No, no, no I understand that. I, yeah, I'm thinking more yeah. of the, the crusade kind of evangelism of the, you know, Billy Sunday onward. Yeah, um, right. Well, that kind of leads me to one of the, but, the next thing I wanted to get to. I mean, you got something else. I go ahead. I'll, I'll stop. Saying. I was just going to say that that so a good number of people that I have known on this journey have said, I want something meatier, something that has that has uh, anchoring that is deeper, and so they find themselves turning to Rome or turning east. And I've seen people, a number of people, make that make that move, uh, either like uh, confessionally, as in they join the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox churches, or or that's kind of what they read and where they go intellectually because because they just want they want something deeper, better rooted. Um, more traditional. Well, um, yep. uh, Peter, Pete Enns, I've had on the show, and he, he talked about he had started taking the Bible more seriously when he started taking it less literally. Uh, has that been your experience? I've, I've been taking the Bible seriously since I was 16, um, but, but I have felt more of a freedom in recent years to read the Bible uh, without being shackled by some of what I was taught in essentially fundamentalist versions of how you read the Bible. So 
basically, I think, I mean, there's a lot of interesting work being done on the Bible these days by post-evangelicals like Peter Enns. Brian McLaren has done some, Rob mm-hmm. Bell has done some. Um, it's, it's basically deeply appreciative of what is in the Bible and trying to allow the Bible to be what it is, a library of inspired, very ancient, and very diverse texts, as opposed to um, the more kind of wooden, one-size-fits-all, literalist, you know, I mean, even that word literal is just, it's just only, re- only somewhat relevant. Like, do you read a poem literally? Like, you read a poem for what it is. You read it as a poem. Um, do you read a wisdom saying literally? I mean, you know, you read it for what it is. And so taking genre more seriously, taking historical context more seriously, um, uh, letting these texts be what they are, including with some tensions um, and contrasts and arguments within the text, I think it makes for a richer experience of reading the Bible, and it doesn't insult our intelligence by making it straightjacketed by by a bad theology of what the Bible is. Yeah, there still seems to be this this you know looking for another counsel on inerrancy and to to argue about it over rather than trying to um, instead of instead of trying to figure out what does the Bible mean or what is it saying now is um, what do we think about. Uh, you know how inerrant is it? I mean, who, and that, and you, you, you said you were cooperative Baptist fellowship. That really was the heart of. You know, there aren't, as far as I know, any. There aren't any liberal Baptists. I mean, I, I've been around them a long time, in the true classical sense of liberals. I mean, <laughs> there's not too many, not too no. many, and, uh, very uh, small number. Um, but they're all know, biblical, but a lot of yeah, you know, a lot of times they, it's about the hermeneutic. It's about the way the Bible is approached. The Bible remains central, but. Uh, how historical critical do you go? Um, how much are you willing to, to acknowledge different voices, different arguments in the text? Um, like, for example, Job, I think, argues with the Deuteronomist who says bad things happen because we're being punished. Job is an argument with Deuteronomy and the tradition of Deuteronomy. The Bible just makes so much more sense if you allow the arguments within the text to be what they are instead of uh, pretending that they're not there and doing some kind of awkward harmonizing. Um, so, so, yeah, I think, I think there can be a renewal of the reading of the Bible, um, but not, not through just layering another statement on inerrancy over the ones that are already out there and thinking that's going to solve anything. It's sort of the rabbinical approach, what does it mean, you know? I mean, what, yeah. do, what do these uh, words mean? And, you know, Jesus even, more often than not, would turn and say when people would ask him, what, what do you think? What do you think it means? <laughs> it's, a, it's a conversation. Um, it's a conversation within a community. Um, there's a lot of good work that has been done recently on, you know, the text is produced in the faith community. It is read by the faith community. The authority of the text is acknowledged by the faith community. And, and, and um and there's certain skills and virtues involved in reading the Bible well. Uh, nothing is is guaranteed, certainly not by just kind of claiming infallibility. That doesn't guarantee that we will read the Bible in a way that we should. And that kind of leads these next few questions I ask everybody that I have on. Um, do you do you believe in a literal hell? You know, um, 
I would say that that when you actually revisit the references to hell in the teachings of Jesus, a lot of times they are in the context of warnings about injustice. I was teaching through some of this uh, this weekend. Um, you get burning, this, you know, and a torment in like uh, the story of Lazarus and the unconcerned rich man, and um, the story, uh, the great judgment scene of Matthew 25, um, in which the judgment is for those who didn't feed the hungry or clothe the naked or, or give water to the thirsty or visit the sick. Um, and so Jesus uses hell language to warn unconcerned complacent people to do what has always been clear from Scripture, and that is to take care of those who are in trouble and to advance justice. Um, So certainly that's the rhetorical use of it most of the time, at least in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, I would like to believe that in the very end of, of all things, that there will be an ultimate reconciliation of God with all of his creatures. Um, but I'm also thoroughly impressed by how wicked human beings can become, how utterly godless, and how utterly turned in on themselves, violent, and so on. Um, you know, this kid who, uh, mur- who shot up that church on Sunday in uh, Texas, um, everything about his, what we know about him is, is just atrocious. Um, so... I don't feel any need um, to pretend that, or that, 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 that evil is not real, that wickedness is not real, that godlessness is not real. And if, if there are souls, people, who end up entirely unreconciled with God and neighbor by their choice, it would seem to me that something like eternal punishment uh, is, is an appropriate destiny for them. So, um, so I... That's what I think. I, I don't, um, I don't feel like it's an utterly non-negotiable question, but, um, but I do think that it's worth talking about because it raises issues that are important. Well, you mentioned the shooting, uh, and I guess you saw the response that uh, the Attorney General of Texas said that everybody should be armed when they go to church. Uh, as a pastor, what's your response <laughs> to thinking everybody's packing aid in the pew? <clears throat> um. Uh, our 300 million guns are right now not making us any safer on the whole. Um, And I don't think that somehow having more of them around is going to. But but that's an old argument, um, and it's not going away. You know, I just saw an article in the New York Times today that was a study a scientific study, you know, on uh, why America's gun violence is so much worse than other countries. And according to that particular study, the only isolatable cause is the sheer number of guns that we have in our country compared to other other countries. Um, so I I also think we have an awful lot of mentally ill and, and thoroughly wicked young people, young men especially, uh, who are armed and who are dangerous. So, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't somehow think I would gain a lot of comfort from having 
a whole bunch of uh, poorly trained people uh, carrying revolvers or whatever under their under their uh, suit jackets on Sunday morning. Um, but I will say that um, I, I have never been in a Jewish synagogue in America or anywhere in Europe where there is not armed security. And that's because they have been so often attacked in their places of worship. And so, um, so they always have armed security. And I'm not, a, I'm not an idealist in this sense. If, if it becomes clear that places of worship are not safe, that they're soft targets, easily penetrated by murderers, then I would think they would need to heighten their security. Um, but I don't think that's, you know, everybody in the deacon, in the diaconate, you know, carrying a gun. I think it's professionals. Um, and I've talked some about this with my, with my church leadership. Um, it's a real, it's beginning to be a real issue for every place where people gather in large numbers has to be asking the security questions. It's tragic, but it's true. And we don't have time to really chase the gun issue right now. We won't. I, I do think, right. I just wanted to respond that, you know, growing up in the South and having friends who are good people who love God and love their families and contribute to their communities, but they have 45 guns at home or 50 guns at home. I'm just baffled by the, you know, the, the continued thought process, I need another gun. You know, um, I was in the bookstore the other day, and uh, if you go to a big bookstore, you see the kind of magazines that people, you know, that entertain them, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like, here's all the magazines about fashion, here's all the magazines about sports, and about cars, and about current events, and here's all the magazines about guns. We are entertained by our guns. Our guns are an amusement for us. Um, they just happen to be a very dangerous amusement. And uh, I'd be very surprised if there was any place else in the world where if you went into a bookstore, you'd find 15 different magazines about guns. It's, it's just, it's an American thing. And um, it's, you know, I don't get it. It's never been part of my culture. And I don't think it's doing us any good right now, that's for sure. Shifting gears a little bit, who have been some of your biggest influences? Who, who has influenced you in writers or in person or, or anywhere? Um, I would say in my early Christian days, I was affected by, by kind of who was put in front of me as some of the apologists of the faith, like C.S. Lewis um, was influential at an early stage. When I discovered um, Christian ethics, I, I realized that um, there were a lot of great moral thinkers, both contemporary and traditional. So I began reading people like um, Martin Luther King and Reinhold Niebuhr and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, people mainly in the mainly in the American Christian ethics tradition and mainly Protestant. Um, but then through the years, I have found my way to the classics, you know, uh, Augustine and the Church Fathers and some Calvin. I don't love Calvin, but some parts of Calvin, Luther, same thing. Some of the Anabaptist writers. Um, so basically the whole, I'm sitting here in my office looking at my library. I mean, the whole, the whole heritage of the Church is accessible now to anybody who would like to engage it. And um, 
So I'm amazed at how much fluff Christians read. If you go into the average now, again, local bookstore, and look what's on the religion shelves, it's just atrocious. It's, it's popcorn. Um, and we have a lot, of, a lot of meaty Christian theology and ethics that has been and is being written today, um, and has been historically. So, uh, you know, I, I call people to know the canon, to know the tradition, um, as well as uh, to pay attention to who some of the smarter voices are now. Um, so, so that's what I would say. Um, uh, I, I would like to know more, and I'm working to know more, of what is being written in uh, African-American and Latino and Asian, Asian-American writing. I want to know more the uh, people of color and the, the, the global church, not just the North American and white and Anglo church. So that's kind of a growing edge for me. Have you had any mentors that really have helped you along the way? Yeah. Um, I usually name three or four. My initial youth minister uh, named Kenny Carter at my first church in Northern Virginia. Um, my uh, campus minister in college, Pete Parks. Uh, my, my main mentor was my seminary professor, Glenn Stassen, who became such a dear friend and eventually a colleague, uh, Leah Rasmussen at Union Seminary in New York, um, Ron Sider at Eastern Seminary when I was, I was working uh, on his staff during my doctoral days. He was very influential. And, um, uh, and then a guy named David Dockery from, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary and Union University. Um, it's interesting how they're all men and they're all white. That's kind of the world out of which, you know, we all came. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I've have tried to mentor a more diverse array of people. And I know that part of what needs to happen for the future is we need to train leaders of every hue, every, you know, gender, every background so that we can spread the wealth in and train uh, people in a more diverse environment. Uh, do you do you have any regular spiritual disciplines you practice? Yes, most um, every morning. It's pretty simple. It's what I was taught in high school. Most every morning, I still get up early, first thing, um, brew some coffee, and um, have a devotional time. Uh, I'm, I usually am reading in three or four places in the Bible at the same time. Uh, just kind of reading through. I'm in Psalms, Isaiah, and John right now, and uh, and read a section, reflect on it, journal about it. I also have a prayer book that my wife and I put together uh, that is really nice. It's classic prayers of the church for every morning and evening. It's called Yours is the Day, Lord, and um, so I read from that, and then I have some journaling time. So also get away some on retreats for more extended reflection. And then I do a, a an evening prayer is the last thing that I read at night. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty structured and it has been really, really important to me through the years. Got two more questions. And again, these are two questions I'm asking all my guests on thinking God podcast. The first one is a big one. And if you need to take a deep breath, who is Jesus? Oh, that's all? That's all you got? Okay. Um, I can answer <laughs> You'd be that. surprised. That that actually takes some people, they want, they're want. they trying to decide whether to, to give me some sort of uh, long theological definition mm-hmm. or a personal, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I believe 
that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to redeem the world. And um, so, so I, I have a very high Christology. I believe what the New Testament and what the Christian tradition says about Jesus. And I stake my life on that belief. This last one's easy. When's the last time you laughed so hard you lost your breath? <laughs> um, it's funny, there hasn't been as much laughter recently. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of grim stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually uh, my grandson will will be the one to send me into spasms of laughter because of something funny or silly that he will say or do. So I'm going to say probably the last time I had an extended period with my grandson. David, too. I really enjoyed this conversation, man. I appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast and look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All the best to you. Great. We need more pastor uh, scholars um, like David and, I do appreciate the, the the work he's had and the ground he has pl- helped plow over the last several decades. Um, people who have a deep and abiding faith and uh, a serious commitment to it and who also pay attention to the higher call of Jesus that um, transcends our, our cultural uh, picadillos and other things. Well, look forward to seeing you again next time on the Thinking God podcast. You can check us out on thinkinggod.com, iTunes, Google Play, any of the normal places. And until then, do something to make the world a better place. Silver and gold, everyone wishes for it. How do you measure its worth?